Welcome to this edition of the Million Dollar Mastermind Podcast. This is where we pick the brains of high achievers from all walks of life and get their hard-earned, real-world insights on winning. I'm your host, Larry Wydell. I'm talking with Kurt Euler. Hello, Kurt. Hey, thanks for having me. I hear you're up in North Georgia enjoying the uh, shifting of the seasons up there. Yeah, it's great out here this time of year. It's great every time of the year, but especially right now. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your life of achievement. And the only thing is you just create a, an amazing problem for me because usually when I get people on, you know, the first thing is let people know who are they is, you know, set up the context. What's this person done that I should pay attention to? And uh, with the trouble with you is, you know, we'd be the rest of the hour. <laughs> you're, I wrote a book called Serial Winner, and you're like somebody who uh, has done winning with like hyperspeed and achievements in your life. And so as so we're going to dig into as much of that as we can. But, you know, you've done uh not just the United States globally, you've done marketing, you've spoken, you're, I guess, mainly, uh, probably mainly Europe, but uh, in addition to presenting at prominent industry events, what's the PPAI and GDC? PPAI was the performance, the performance products industry, so the swag industry. So highly regulated, but everybody is making gear that's got people's labels on it. So Okay. And, GD- and GDC is... That's the Game Developers Convention. I've invented some core technology that's used for creating games from Microsoft to Sony to other organizations as well. So, And so they chose you to present at these things. I mean, that what did you talk about? <laughs> well, back when I was speaking in the gaming industry, which has been for a little while, we came up with a new way. I was at a company called Navtech, it's now called Here Technologies, that most of us know for the maps on our phones or in our car navigation systems. And I had friends building video games. And uh, we had some ideas that the lawyers found very interesting. And so we filed a whole bunch of patents on them that basically we went into Microsoft Flight Simulator and we said, you all spend about $100 million to build a, a version of Microsoft Flight Simulator. We think we can save you about $40 million. Would you like to have a conversation? And uh, most people want to have that conversation. And so we're not quite sure we saved them $40 million, but we probably saved them $25 million in that build for that first year. Yeah. And you've gotten in a lot of, uh, it, but you've also spoken at the White House. What was that all about? I used to be the chairman of an organization called the Made in America movement. So they were help kind of the chamber of commerce in a way for the brands that are that have are able to use the Made in the USA country of origin label. And uh-huh. so the Trump administration had a belief early on that how you can help the whole economy is that is a very narrow group, people that only can build stuff here in the United States and use that label. Same thing as made in Japan or made in Germany or anywhere. And so they called around like 12 industry executives and they said, hey, we want to put together this symposium. Who should help us put that together? And 10 people either said the Made in America movement, which came back to me, or they named me personally. So I ended up seating about 60% of the people at that first public White House event and then a few other things we did with them as well. And that's where you got into advising the uh, president of the United States along with CEOs and things like that. It's pretty heady type experience, isn't it? It is, but I mean, some of the CEOs, I've been more of the executive coach for CEOs and presidents of companies as we're still growing and finding things. 
I really, though, I've been mentored by some of the best CEOs and presidents around the world. And now I'm kind of blessed to be at a my second hypergrowth company, a company that didn't even exist 20 years ago. Now is a publicly traded company. And we have that visionary CEO that needs people to make things happen. And I'm known as a scaler. And so that's one of the places I feel very at home is when there's that product market fit and people would like to unlock hypergrowth. Not many people are able to do that and trying to make that happen. Yeah. And I noticed here that uh, you mentioned Navtech, which is uh, now called HERE saw that thing go from 85 million in revenue to 1.2 billion. You know, it's hard to have a success in business, but to keep that thing compounding, keep that momentum going and up to a scale like that is pretty darn amazing. So hopefully we'll get into that. But, you know, because most companies, the thing, the life of most people and most companies who are successful, have some success, is they go a little stale, get a little arrogant, take things for granted. They don't think they are. They think they're just busting it and everything, but they're not. Right. And they're not quite as critical of themselves because they got money rolling in. They have some success. But what's happening is they're losing their momentum. They're losing their sparkle and their, their you know, it's like I always say there's a reason why the car dealers get out there and wash the dust off of those cars every morning in the lot because they get a little dull overnight. And you want them to be shiny and sparkly if you want to sell those things. And you just can't take it for granted. And to be able to keep the energy and the excitement up and the sense of mission and mobilization, because you got to have people making extra effort to have that kind of, not just working, but making extra effort because they're excited about the company and the impact and the difference they're making in the world. And uh, that has to be, that comes from somewhere. That's got to come from the top. It's not going to happen by accident. And then what would you say in line with that, that, you know, put, shed some light on that process just before we dive into some of the other things? I mean, there's so many things that come to mind. I mean, there is a point where I think, especially for a lot of investors or people that own a company, it comes to mind, I have a friend in Florida that has a eight-figure company doing really good business. I mean, eight-figure, he owns all of it, but it's comfortable money. I look at the business and I'm like, this could be a $100 million plus a year business, no problem, but he has comfortable money. So he's kind of lost that thirst for trying to grow that more. And that's okay. But I, for me, I think there's so many places, you use the term momentum, so many places that companies and individuals get derailed. And in some cases, it's because of innovation. And a lot of times, it's the leaders that what got them in the leadership style of that authoritarian leadership does not allow you to really unlock growth and momentum the way that I've seen in the past. Talk about to get into all the things you've done, how did you start? I mean, you didn't start, you don't fall out of bed and have these contacts around the world, have these achievements, have this knowledge, have this focus, have these skill set that you've developed over the years. How did this evolve? Where would you say with the first trigger and how young were you? And what were you started thinking about? I think I was nine or 10 when my dad built hours for me to what would have been Lumen Technologies at the time, AT&T, you would have known it as Bell Labs. And then kind of, it continued to more, actually it was Lucent and it kept morphing. But my dad started with Bell Labs. And so he took me to the office when I was like nine or 10 and I solved some math problems that they had been struggling with. And really? um, he ended up, he told me the story later. And I was like, what, like, I do remember this really great Christmas. And he goes, 
well, yeah, I submitted an invoice for your hours. I was like nine. He was like, we've been trying to tackle some of this for a little while. And you just kind of knew that. So I, I stumbled into that. But a lot of it, though, while my dad was on the tech side, my mom was that country-raised woman who she taught me, you don't go to bed when you're tired. You go to bed when the work is done. So, I mean, I remember being 11 and 12, and we're out raking under the moonlight because there was still work to be done, and that was her work ethic. And when I think you're raised in that, it's hard to, like, binge on Netflix. I mean, my wife has gone through, I think she just passed 120 books read this year alone. And so she reads more than I do, but it's like, when you have that appetite for learning and doing things, the world kind of looks very different. So that I kind of developed skills that way. So that was my initial triggers was just my mom and dad taught me to work from the earliest of age. And they gave me hard problems that were really way too big for my britches at the time. Like what would a problem like that be that you remember? That I remember, well, would have been, so at 13, I mean, I kind of did the same thing. I started hiring friends when I was 13 and I didn't have to file taxes. I kind of hit things. I had to form two LLCs when I was 14 because I was doing enough business that I was having to pay payroll taxes by January of that year. And so like, that was the first thing where I realized like, wait a second, like Papa government wants a piece of what I'm doing. I'm just hiring my friends. So in that case, like I ended up building what I sold a, a six figure lawn care and pressure washing business when I went to college. And I mean, it was great business, especially from somebody in high school going, and I learned so much. What I did not realize, though, was this old timer in Guntersville, Alabama, as I was going to college, I was kind of talking, my dad was had retired, and we were helping in the rescue squad, because it's volunteer organizations in a lot of rural America. And I mentioned that I was going to just basically shut down the lawn care business. And he was like, how many customers do you have? I shared some numbers. And he was like, you're not going to shut that down. Somebody's going to buy that from you. And I had never even come to my mind. Like, I'm right. going to college. Like, this is what you do. And it wasn't a great six figure, but it was into six figures from the exit at that point. That's what I really remember, like the struggling things of realizing, like, I'm 18 and I'm selling a business. Why? And so what I've realized that I go through is like going through that, both building that and selling off, I'm really good at operations and scaling. I like finding problems like, oh my gosh, I file taxes. How do you figure that out as a 14 year old? Dad right. didn't help me. Dad said, this is your problem. You really need to figure this out. <laughs> and he probably checked in a little bit more than I, yeah. like, I would, would realize. But I solved that by myself. I found an accountant. I said, file all the, the paperwork for it. And dad probably made sure I was safe and okay and not going to go to jail. But they, they didn't expect to have to handhold me. So those were my early triggers. Yeah. Now, you get, you're going up. You get into school. I guess you've already had a fairly well-developed sense of the difference between how you operated and you looked at life, opportunity, problems, and versus most people. That it probably already started to form in your mind that you could probably do some pretty substantial things out there in the world. What did you... so? From that standpoint, what did you choose as, I want to get educated in this? I thought I wanted to, uh, I thought I wanted to be a biomedical surgeon. And so uh, my brother is an amputee, his arms amputated right above his uh, right elbow. And that intrigued me. I'd done some work in Redstone Arsenal growing up. And I, I was like, that sounds really fun. And uh, it wasn't until I got it. So I, I went to Vanderbilt to study biomedical and electrical engineering. And I was going to minor in math. And I learned really quickly I was not going to do well in traditional schooling because I do not memorize stuff well at all, like impossible memorization, like doesn't happen. 
I can go walk into almost any math math, and I can derive my way from root equations, but I can never memorize stuff. It just doesn't click yeah. for me. And so, well, you're never going to go through biomedical engineering without being able to pass by sci and, chem, uh, yeah. and chemistry. And so I pivoted to electrical engineering. And I mean, frankly, it was difficult. I didn't like public. I mean, I didn't like traditional schooling. It was too slow. So I actually dropped out of Vanderbilt with about 21 hours left and wow. took six months off, was fully supported. My dad was like, if you don't want to go to school, don't go to school. Ended up going to Alabama, University of Alabama, finishing out an undergraduate, testing out of that, and then getting a, a master's in financial engineering. So being able to code out Black Dermot and Toy and all these other, you know, you want mortgage-backed securities? We could build the systems for that is what I was trained to do. Yeah. And um, didn't, I mean, I thought I was going to go work for a lot of the big investment banks that do mortgage-backed securities. And that was not what happened to my life. So you get out of school, you had to be looking at opportunities. You probably had your hand in a lot of pies as you went through school. I did. I, when I dropped it. You don't seem to be somebody who was only doing one thing. <laughs> Well, I was a cross-country and indoor and outdoor track athlete at Vanderbilt, oh, okay. so that takes a lot of time. Wow. Uh, Coach Paul Arsenault, like, he pushed you really hard, and he did the most successful thing that I think either in athletics, but especially in business, as I, I've coached people at all levels, he let me fail. When I decided I was going to leave Vanderbilt, I basically had to give him notice at the beginning of an indoor season, and he basically said, okay, and he didn't try to talk me out of it, and it was like... I think, you know, looking back and we, you know, I had some discussion, he knew it wasn't a wise decision for me, but he didn't, he didn't talk me out of it. He let me fail. Looking back, I kind of wish I wouldn't have made that decision. I started an e-commerce company, did quite well for many, many years, but he let me fail. And so most people don't kind of have that blessing to look back and go, gosh, like too many people get coddled to like force you to try to make decisions that aren't bad. And there's, right. there's a benefit to making bad decisions and acknowledging, yeah, yeah, I did learn, but it was a bad decision. Yeah, right. Yeah. The self, the honesty and self-assessment is always tough, but it's the same thing like if you're a writer, you know, to, what do you throw out? The rewrite, what a songwriter or one thing I do is photography and you take a hundred pictures and if you get two or three portfolio level pictures out of that. It's a miracle. You know what I'm saying? It's, you know, you have to, and the hard thing is to self-edit. You know, I have three, four, five, these are all great. And so self-editing is similar into business where you look at yourself and said, yeah, I got away with that, but I shouldn't try that again. Yeah. That self-review is your point is like, the editing bit, it's so critical to do yourself, but it's also the hardest thing. It's the reason, like writing books and other things, like outside editors are so gloriously helpful. But that self-review, like my writing, my speaking gets so much better. I've got a speaking coach because I do a fair bit of keynote speaking and I'm getting back into that. And uh, he's making me, he'll make me watch this recording, this our episode as it comes out. He'll make, uh, make me listen to it on audio only, uh, watch uh, it without sound, and then watch it while listening to it for a third time when there's video available for things and oh my gosh like there's no i could never get notes from you larry listening to me do something preparing for keynotes easy but these one-on-one conversations yeah you go back you're like oh 
wow, the more passionate I am, the worse I speak, I find. But yeah. I've only got that because of that self-review. But the same thing happens if I look back at my calendar and go, where did I spend my time this week? I mean, I'm 20, 30 years into my career at this point, And still, I look back at my week and I'm like, how am I still making some of the same mistakes that I made five years or 10 years ago? Yeah. Well, between me and you, maybe that time is more better spent than you understand at this point. You know what I'm saying? It could be that puts you in a frame of mind to be able to do other things. You know, it's well, it also it that and it also it gives it makes it right for me to bring up things with my team. What you know, you you asked earlier about like how do you find that continued momentum? I think it's easy for somebody to be that kind of micromanager leader when companies are small. But especially if you're going to start growing, there's no way that you or me or anybody could be involved in all the even mid-level decisions that everybody has to make. And so the best way I can end up kind of creating some of those environments where people come to me when they feel like that they need it and it's outside of their wisdom is by sharing with them some of my failures or things that I struggle with. And I so like that weekly review actually gives me things to go back to my teams and my direct reports and go, here's what I'm struggling with. And it makes it more likely for them to come back to me and go, well, actually, I have this problem and I was kind of hesitant to bring it up because I didn't want to get in trouble. Well, those are the best times to get in and out. Thanks for listening to the Million Dollar Mastermind. If you felt there were any valuable takeaways from this episode, please take a minute and leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is important and really helps us get the word out to a wider audience. Remember, we have a valuable webinar that is absolutely free. Register for it right now at whiteallonwinning.com. Thanks for listening.